Father, thank you that we have been called to be your people, as Kitty read this morning. Um, you've made us whole in you, filled our hearts with joy, love, mercy, peace, forgiveness. And you've made us your people, citizens of your kingdom. I pray that that theme would just run congruent in our lives as we're studying it in Acts, and that we'd be inspired by this story, and that you would encourage our lives to be sacrifices unto you, holy and acceptable and pleasing. So fill us. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I was in high school and even early on in my 20s doing youth ministry or serving and helping youth ministry, one of my favorite times of year was summer. Summer meant camp. And camp was awesome. Camp was awesome because as a 15-year-old counseling 12 and 13-year-olds or a 17-year-old counseling, you know, middle schoolers or even a 19-year-old counseling that age group, you got this thing for the first time in your life called power. (laughs) Awesome. Amanda knows about this. She's been to camp with me. And the way power works is really interesting. It's really the ability to control or to get desired outcomes out of a situation or people, correct? That's the whole idea behind power. Now, at camp, I could remake myself. I used to go to four or five a summer, uh, each time trying different methods of power. Though I didn't have terminology for them at this time, I now look back and understand what I was doing. Uh, To be a good counselor, you needed your crew to be decent and in order and to listen to you because we played some intense games and I didn't play to lose. It's not the kind of counselor I was. So to early on get my kids in order, um, I would exert what we might call hard power. So it'd be like 10 p.m., roll them out of their sleeping bags and throw them in the mud pit to show them I'm the boss and they better listen to me. Um, There was a lot of duct tape involved in the things we did at camp. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. And wherever your imagination went, it's probably worse. (laughs) Incriminating. Those are the things I wake up at at night wondering, I wonder if those kids are going to turn me in. (laughs) I wised up and tried to be the likable counselor using what we would call soft power. In fact, one time, this one time, we went to a work retreat That's when I was a youth pastor here uh, in Bend. And I took my group over, which is about 25 kids, with Applegate's group, my old churches, which is about like 150 kids. And when I realized that they ran out of work for the students to do, but they were just creating jobs for them to do something to keep them busy, I thought it was ridiculous. So I became the cool, likable counselor in rebellion, bringing all my kids coffee. (laughs) Then we went and hung out and played some volleyball. And everybody at that point went, we want to move to Bend to be a part of that youth group. (laughs) Soft power. And so we talk about these terms, and I'm going to give you a little bit better definitions this morning, but I want to ask you, have you ever found yourself in a position of power? Have you ever found yourself in a position of power? Maybe thinking, no, not me. Are you a parent? Are you a boss? Do you oversee some group of people? And when you think through 
This idea that in these situations you have power, what is your go-to method and how you try to, I hate to use this term, but control people or get them to get the desired outcome done in whatever project might lay before you? Because that is an important aspect. And what we see throughout the course of history is these two terms, hard and soft power. Soft power was coined in the 80s, so that's a relatively new phrase. It's not a new way of getting things done. So let me just start first and foremost uh, with hard power. Hard power in like terms of government is when a country or a counselor uses military or economic means as influence on the behavior or interests of other political bodies. It's a form of political power that is aggressive in nature. So when some countries chose to colonize other countries, they came over, they used hard power, they kept their military there, they made sure by force, fear, intimidation, that their rules, their law, their culture would begin to overtake what was ever happening in that current culture. And hard power, it's aggressive, but my goodness, can it be, well, successful? Yeah, very, very effective. Now, soft power has the ability to influence other people through behavior, through their thinking, through the power of attraction and ideas. And so the whole idea mentality behind soft power is I'm going to persuade you to get to do what I want you to do. So I want you just to have those two terms in the back of your mind, because we're going to see hard power used here in our story of Acts. But we're going to see a cultural shift that's happened to this day with some of the ideas and influences and thoughts that have invaded the West and have created some use of soft power in trying to influence and get people to do what they want to do. So when we look at Acts up to this point, things in the church are going swimmingly well. They've been filled with the Spirit. Peter preaches, 3,000 are added unto the church. They begin to gather in local, like little house assemblies, yet they also are going to the temple to pray. They're keeping much of their Jewish customs that they've been doing for centuries. They're coming together to encourage one another in the Lord. And then all of a sudden in Acts 3, which we're not going to give a detailed account verse by verse, but just a brief retelling, Peter is on his way to the temple to pray. And John is with him. And there's this blind man who's been, excuse me, there's this lame man who's been a beggar from life, whole life paralyzed. His whole world is just broken and shattered. Every wish, every dream this man had ever wanted to accomplish would not have happened because of the state that he's in. And he's begging before the temple. Peter looks down on him and says, silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And then Peter begins to share the good news of Jesus and more people are coming to know and follow him. But it strikes a nerve with the religious elite of that day. They don't like this way of Jesus. They thought they'd already put an end to it once. So what do they do? Well, our story for us begins in Acts 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests, right? These people were the respected community members of that day, giving direction and instruction for life and godliness. Also with them, the captain of the temple, That has like guard kind of language, power kind of language. The captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them 
greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody into the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And they had been set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter said, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which becomes the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they heard the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Peter answered, what is it right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God? You must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Mouthful, I know. It's an important story. The church has gone from this place of absolute explosion and growth and excitement to now all of a sudden fear and intimidation is entering into the community. They've kind of come into this spotlight with these um, moments of healing and teaching and what's gone on in their community. And now these leaders and rulers, they want to put it out and put an end to it. And they're using what is called hard power to do this. And I find it very interesting that they would use fear and intimidation trying to scare them, but we see the response of these apostles. And really, it comes to this interesting question of when fear and intimidation come to challenge your personal walk, faith, belief, the church also at large, trust in Jesus, how are you, how are we as a people going to respond? And this morning... The theme I want to hit away at, chip away at, is what does a resilient church actually look like? How is a resilient church going to respond to, well, in that day, hard power, which is brutal, but also, more subtly, to soft power, influence, ideas implanted in minds? And there's really three options Two primary options when we're put forth with challenges. The first, how people might respond, and I think there's a little slide up there, the first one, is 
The church in this moment, us in that moment, we can retaliate and conquer. It's like my human fleshly side. You push me, I'll push you. You poke my eye out, I'll poke your eye out. <laughs> I mean, my son hides behind doors and scares me. Oh, you better believe he's not going to sleep that night. <laughs> yeah. Eye for an eye. Will they use force to conquer? And sadly, at certain points in the history of the church, they actually tried to conquer in the name of Jesus. It is an absolute horrible stain on the mission of God. It was never the intent to pick up the sword and to go conquer, kill, and murder in the name of Jesus. Yet, there were movements. They were not faithful. Listen, they were not faithful to the mission of Jesus in this, but acted as if they were, committed horrible atrocities, when that was nowhere near the way of Jesus. Will this church retaliate? I mean, they got 5,000 people following them at this point. You can raise up a pretty good army with 5,000 people. Well, they will resist and withdraw. Resist and withdraw. Oh no, the religious elite are persecuting us. Let's go down to the southern part of Israel. Let's hide in some caves. Petra's not far from here. Let's just have our own little community and bake bread, make some oils, sell them out of the Dead Sea, and we're gonna have a great time together and withdraw and just have our nice own little community. There's a problem with withdrawal from society. You know? As great as the Amish looked during COVID, right? They have very, very little influence in culture today. Very little impact in making that difference. Withdrawal can't be the answer. Retaliation can't be the answer. So what's a creative third solution? Being a resilient kind of church. Resiliency is interesting. It's like taking a rubber band and you're able to stretch that rubber band and it doesn't snap and it can return back to form. Now, it's going to be a little bit more wrung out. I understand that. But it comes back to that form without breaking, without being snapped apart. And what we see here in Scripture and what we need for our church, not just our little C church today, but the church in general, especially the church in the West, is a movement towards resiliency that does not lose hope, even in spite of the public's eye looking down upon the church and its practices, keeping orthodox faith while remaining relevant to culture today. What does that look like and how might that happen? Because this section of scripture has purpose for us. There's still an enemy that's at work and there needs to be a church that remains resilient because we are called to be faithful to God and his mission. So what I want to do, I want to take this word missiology. Are you familiar with the word missiology? I took a missiology class in college. It was it was none of this stuff. It wasn't very good, all right? But I'm going to ask you guys to put on your best missiology mind thinking, become a missiologist. Well, what exactly is that? Ed Stetzer has a great definition of what it means to be a missiologist. At the most basic level, a missiologist is a specialist who studies and is trained in the science of missions. However, this definition may be oversimplified the task of a missiologist. Missiology is accomplished at the intersection of the gospel, culture, and the church. Essentially, what a missiologist does 
is they look at whatever culture they're going to go to. So if you're saying, I live here in America and I want to take the gospel to some foreign land, you're going to spend some time studying their culture, their customs, their myths, their legends, the things that they believe to be truth, and you're going to try to then connect the symbols and truths of scripture in order to come into their culture to share Jesus with them without, and it's going to be a key word, colonizing them, making them Americans, essentially. We're going to get into that in just a second. This is what a missiologist does. They contextualize. So, great example. Early on in the scriptures, you see in Acts, Peter, Stephen, Philip, they're sharing Jesus with people that are very familiar with Jesus. So they quote scripture. In fact, Stephen just straight preaches the Exodus story in order for these that are hearing him to hopefully come to know who Jesus is, right? They're entrenched in it. But when Paul goes to the Areopagus, Areopagus, Mars Hill there, in Acts like 17, he quotes the poets of the Greeks. He talks about the unknown God trying to connect to that culture, trying to relate who Jesus is into reference where they're at. Contextualization is something that's happened as early as Acts, and it's important to keep that in mind. Now, what does that look like, and what's going on in our culture? Because you maybe don't know it, or maybe you felt it, there has been a shift. Well, there is a missiologist, Philip Reef, who talks about two cultures and now a third culture. These are lengthy definitions, but I'm going to read them to you guys. First culture, right? The first culture, they believe in many gods. The individual is a victim to fate, The world is full of irrational spiritual forces. To survive, the individual must obey the taboos of the gods through turning to shaman, witch doctors for guidance and protection. The world is a frightening, spiritually charged place. The individual feels besieged by forces beyond their control. Now, does that sound like America? No, it doesn't sound like America. Not at all. Okay, New Orleans, I love that. <laughs> this is first culture. You might think um, like animism going over to African culture or some of the Chinese ancestral worship and those cultures. You might think the Greeks way back when and their beliefs in the plurality of the gods and some that maybe possibly even hold to all of that still today. Something wrong with this first culture belief. This is just where they're at. This is what they believe. This is how they understand the world. This is how they make sense of why what's happening to them is what's happening to them. As Paul Tripp says, we're all meaning makers. What that means is we're telling ourselves stories to make sense of why she died and he hit me and this problem exists why I'm poor or why I'm rich or why I'm just kind of meddling in this life. We tell ourselves stories and those stories might consist of the gods made it this way. Or early on, the gods enslaved the humans. Therefore, we can enslave humans in mimicking the gods that we serve. That was an Egyptian kind of thought early on, right? The stories we tell ourselves culturally influence how we live. So there's this chart that I have. I don't have it. Mark Sayers has it. It's phenomenal. Let's see that chart. Yes. 
This is what's going on here in missiology. We want to, second culture, which we're going to get to it, communicate the gospel using indigenous symbols, stories, and structures, but we don't want to make them Americans. That's not the goal of Christianity. Christianity will long exist past America. To all you nationalists, I'm sorry, but that is truth. It'll outlive it. Well, what is second culture? Get this definition up. Second culture are scriptural cultures rooted in Judeo-Christian ethic. They center their entire order on the worship of one true God. The whole of the universe is arranged by God in rational, sacred order. There are not taboos, but rather sacred prohibitions and commandments that must be obeyed. These commandments and prohibitions ensure justice and human flourishing. In the second cultures, God revealed himself through the scripture. Thus, religion is creedal. Religion is creedal. The individual finds peace, security, faith, worship by God, and obeying his commands in the world. All right, so this is this idea of second culture. This mimics a Western kind of culture. Since 313 AD, when Constantine conquered in the name of Jesus, and no longer was Christianity just simply the most prominent religion because it was filled with many believers, it became the dominant religion of the West. In fact, they would then use it for their own power, wrong structures that were built upon, and people debate whether this was good or bad for Christianity. I can tell you I don't think it was the best thing in the world for it. And we have a chart here of what happened. So in this situation, second culture is where America was, whether you were a Christian or not, for a long time. Your values, if you grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, maybe not the 60s so much, right? They kind of had this little hippie era that swayed and began to sway away from a lot of the traditional values that were not Um, I shouldn't say religion, but values based upon Christianity that were foundational uh, in the country. Second culture had all of these people in that generation. And what did they do? Well, culture moved a little bit. And they began to notice that the secularization of Western culture happened. The secularization, what, what is that? The whole idea of the secularization of Western culture was we don't really want your God. We don't need God. We're going to separate things apart. So what does the church do? The church says, hey, this worked when we went second culture to first culture. We need to take our symbols, our ideas, our context, our, their context. We need to adopt that. We need to be able to share the gospel in their language, in their ways, for them to know Jesus. So the church, being so crazy and innovative in the 80s and 90s, said, how can we look more like secular culture? Well, we'll change how... We dress in church. When was the last time you saw me wear a tie in church? That is a reflection of this movement. When was the last time, though, it would have been so rad that we've heard the organ played in church? We have it. We don't have one. We have this cool keyboard up here, right? We decided there's some things that are barriers that aren't allowing for the church to relate to people who don't know Jesus. Just by walking into a church that feels real churchy, what does a churchy church feel like? It's stuffy, people are grumpy, there's stains on the carpet, right? We've all walked into these kind, and everybody's just kind of like, who the heck are you? 
Do you even belong here? And so the church goes, we need to wise up. And we need to contextualize to the secularization of Western culture if we're going to relate to them without colonizing them. Right? We'll just kind of leave that hanging out there. And that sounds all fine and dandy. You're in a church that has to some degree done that. But here's what's gone on. Secularization is long gone. If you are any bit of a student of culture, we now live in the moment of post-modernism. Or if you're really on the cutting edge, post-post-modernism, okay? It's this idea, this term that maybe you've heard and Christians say with disdain. They're upset about it. They're frustrated by it. This third culture is a culture of postmodernism, which has moved beyond that second culture of just this Christianized, Judeo-Christian ethic and foundation, and is something entirely different. What is it? Let me read this to you from Philip. He says, they believe in no greater truth. Or if you want to get like really fun, there's no meta-narrative. There's no big story in this world to connect your life to. There is no sacred order. There is energy. Their energy is devoted to the deconstructing of the sacred. They have no creed but heresy. Their cultural power is centered on transgressing the sacred commandments and prohibitions of the second culture. The only authority is found with the individual. Thus, there is no possibility of a sacred order. All authority that challenges and restricts the autonomy of the individual must be leveled. With no sacred order, the third culture is in constant flux as new authorities and rules appear but are soon deconstructed. The meaning and purpose of all stories, rules, and symbols are contested and left up to individual interpretation. Just sum it up. Postmodernism seeks to simply deconstruct all of second culture. Second culture built upon this foundation of biblical truth. That is the whole purpose of the existence. It's not even to see who's right or wrong. It's just simply to tear it apart and break it down. Now, why is this important? Because as a people, we can see this soft power and thinking and influence moving into the second culture. Third culture seeks to colonize second culture. I'm going to break this down. What's that mean? All right. Life has big questions. Christian, not Christian, religious, irreligious, belong to following the ways of Muhammad, Allah, the Buddha, Hinduism. There's big questions that every human faces in the world. First big question is, who is God? Who is God? That's your theology. Second big question who are you? That's your identity, your anthropology. Third big question is, what are you doing? This morning, the alarm went off, and I was like, here we go again. <laughs> Another day. Kind of getting through the routine. Purpose. The fourth one is morality. When I say morality, I'm not just talking about good or bad, but everybody wants the good life. How am I going to get the good life? Now, here's what's intriguing. Your theology depicts your anthropology, depicts your purpose, depicts your how do I get the good life. Now, how this works with postmodernism is culture 
says, there's no God. There's no God. But we want your utopian society. We want the kingdom. We don't want your king. But there's no God. There's no ultimate authority. The only ultimate authority is the fact that we have the creed that says there's no ultimate authority. Therefore, there's no rules. No one can tell you what truth is or what truth isn't. Then, your identity says, look inward at yourself. If you want to know the true you, you have to go meditate and spend time on your own and plumb the depths of your soul to get at the root of who you are and then redefine what it means to be human. Redefine what it means to be you. Culture then tells you what your purpose and desires are. And this is what they'll say. You are a seeker in Western culture pursuing fulfillment through incredible experiences and pleasure. That's how you'll find who you are. That's why Instagram and TikTok and Facebook have such an appeal and a draw because it's this constant carrot that's dangled out before you of how can I finally get pleasure and be happy like everybody else. Then culture seeks to tell you how to get the good life. What rules you have to or don't have to follow. And it's a kingdom without a king where autonomy rules. Now, the gospel, the news of Jesus as king, paints a different picture. Theology here says there is a God and he's a king in whom you come under. If there's a king, then it identifies who you are. In Genesis 1, you were created in his image, an image bearer given value, significance, and worth. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just the only pagan that watches this stuff, but my wife and I started Dahmer on Netflix. <laughs> Shoot, nobody, I just said, I'm out. <laughs> so I Googled Jeffrey Dahmer's life. And I begin to read a little bit about him. And as many of you probably know his story, apparently in prison, he became a follower of Jesus, okay? baptized. And, and he said this, if there's no God, then there's no one you're accountable to, and you can live and act and behave however you want because there's no consequences in the end. But if there is a God, there is somebody you are accountable to. And the whole world lives as if it's accountable to someone or something. Right? Treat me right. Treat me fair. Fair. Be nice to me. Be good to me. Use your power to help me. Okay? He was on to something. And it's this idea. If there is a God, this God tells us who we are. He then tells us how to, uh, what our desire and purpose, and in Scripture, we're recipients of God's grace that's pursued us, which brings purpose into our lives, and then Scripture defines for you and for me what the good life actually is, a life under God and his kingdom. That's a lot. It's a lot in there. So what do we do with all of this? If we're now in a culture where postmodernism is reigning and ruling, how is the church going to be resilient to the current pressures we feel? What kind of pressures do we feel? Well, in their efforts to deconstruct, I'll just, I'll just read this to you. In deconstructing the former faith and heritage, the mode of third culture is the deconstruction of all modes, 
Nothing is solid in third culture. It is a ghostly world that corrodes anything solid. The third culture is not anarchic as such. Rather, it positions itself as the incarnation of the West's mission to re-educate the world. These are huge sentences, huh? It propagates its own creed, one which believes in no creed except the creed itself. The third culture is the engine that powers post-Christianity. The ultimate authority in the third culture is self. Here's how this has crept in, and here's how this relates to Acts. Maybe you've been invited over to a co-worker's home for, for a meal or just sitting around the table at lunch, getting drinks after work or whatever it might be. And you begin to talk about religion and your belief in Jesus. And all of a sudden, your stances from a Judeo-Christian ethic background don't agree with what postmodernism describes in terms of maybe just sexuality, right? We can just pick that one. At some point, we're going to have to just run down that list. And what happens at the end of that conversation is you don't get any closer to a conclusion on what you, or maybe what they, they fully believe, but what you do know is you feel bad because you don't believe like they believe. And you feel a little bit pushed out and ostracized because in their version of who God is, love is God, not God is love. And the only kind of God that exists is one that would love, accept any kind of behavior that you could ever imagine or think of. There is no rules to play by because autonomy is the ultimate authority in this world. Just tracking with me, maybe, maybe not. This is the thought process that's even entered into the church. Soft power comes in. And your religious belief caused you to be seen in the eyes of somebody else as someone who's actually doing wrong. And the problem is, oh, it's not culture. It's your faith. That's the problem. And culture says if you want to be welcomed into our society, then you better do things the way that we do things. And I'll tell you what, we're feeling that pressure today. And none of this should produce religious snobbery in a Christian, superiority, looking down upon other people, because that's what Christians will often do when they move so far to the right, and they'll either withdraw or try to conquer culture, and they'll just look down and judge and hurt everybody. But a resilient church needs to have a response, otherwise we'll be swept up in the thinking of today. And maybe you know those churches that have. They just begin to adopt the mindset and the ways of the culture of the world because they've already gone that far. They've already stepped into their world. So what are we going to do? I'll make this quick. What are Christians to do? We're not to retaliate. We're not to withdraw. We're to be resilient. How can the church be resilient? First and foremost, through this term of contextualization. We need to be students of culture. If we want to win people for Christ, we shouldn't put up so many barriers for them to even want to be around Christians. So um, Josh and Ben, who are up here doing music, we get together, our families do, it's super fun, like once a month, um, and have a great time. Now, you may not know this about these guys, but uh, Josh is a pilot, and Ben has his pilot license as well, which is awesome for them. I think it's so cool, I'll never get in a small plane, Ben, ever. 
every time we hang out, at some point, they're going to get into a plain conversation. And I'm like, that's my cue. (laughs) Go check on the kids. Because they're mean and don't want to include me? No. (laughs) They would love to include me, but I'm a moron when it comes to planes. How many engines? Is that a propeller? What are those called? And, and so I don't know the language of aeronautics. How do you like that one? I don't know the language. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's a Cessna or a 747 or am I, am I learning? No. Shoot. So I hate that conversation. We're hanging out October 15th, five days for my birthday. Planes come up, it's over, guys. You and Josh, out of my life. Cut off. We still need you for worship some. Um, <laughs> see, if you can't connect, if you can't have even similar language, how, how can you relate? And the church needs to understand, like, we, we need to have shared language with culture. Whether relate, connect, tell stories on who Jesus is and why Jesus matters and who, like, who is God and what is your purpose. But we can't just have lofty religious language and just go into the sanctification and were you predestined and all the nerdy stuff that I absolutely love and I think is a lot like holds everything up. But God, we've got to find ways to communicate, to break down those language barriers to culture. This comes along in like the activities that we should participate in. We can engage in culture, our speech, our dress. We should be relevant. This place should be an okay place if you're a seeker who has questions. If you're like, Brett, I don't agree with some of the stances of the church. Can we talk about these things? Not, here comes the Google review. Where are you coming from on these ideas? Why, why do you believe that as Jesus said this and now you're acting like, how does that all work? This should be a place that we create an atmosphere both in our homes and in our church where people feel welcome. Um, but I also think like, as Michael shared last week, music should be well, at least pleasing to the ears, not like Brett leading worship. <laughs> Applicable, culturally relevant but I want to tell you something else. Though the church can mold in those realms, it's form. Absolutely be flexible in form. And what it believes, we can't shift, church. And what I shared a few weeks back, Jesus is Lord, is the ultimate authority in our lives. And there's a whole lot of, maybe for lack of a better word, consequences. If you claim Jesus as Lord, there's fallout, there's ramifications on the maybe like negative use of language. I would say there's blessing, there's hope, there's joy, and then walking in the ways that he has called us to. A resilient church cannot become relevant in message. It's already relevant because the gospel is enough. But it can't bend itself to appease the appetite of postmodernism. It cannot do that, church. And as much as I'm this, like, believe it or not, I am a nice guy, and I do want to be liked, we have to make firm decrees and stances on what church believes what is gospel-centered, Jesus-given, and the ways of following Jesus because the other paths, they lead to destruction. 
Christ has to be at the center. And we're going to have opportunity over the next year to go through many, many of those things. I'm just priming the pump for that today. Christ at the center for all authority. Finally, I've held you for far too long and we need to sing. What else did the church do? It's right there in our story, in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage in vain? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you appoint anointed with Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. When the church had hard power come against them, they didn't say, Oh, dear Jesus, make it stop. They're hurting us. They're going to get beat in a chapter, like whipped. It's not good. And they're going to say, praise God that we suffered like Christ to bear his shame and to proclaim his name. They didn't pray that it would stop. They didn't pray that they'd get involved in government and all of a sudden christianize the entire Roman world. No, they prayed for boldness. Why? Because they believed that through the preaching and teaching of who Jesus is, it would transform hearts and lives, bringing people into God's kingdom, then spreading his kingdom person to person to person to person, his goodness, his love, his generosity, thus, therefore, changing an empire. Oh, and it had huge ramifications. Read history. All the good the church did. Listen, Redeemers, we need to be resilient. You want to be resilient? We will contextualize. I will not wear a suit. <laughs> Maybe this Christmas or Easter. <laughs> we will have normal language. Right? We're going to talk to one another in ways that are communicable, understanding. We will pray for boldness to make stances that glorify the name of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. think that, why don't we just pray for this boldness, living in the generation and the culture we live in. Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings, Father, and we just need to help to process our way through it in order to still share the goodness and love of Jesus, to connect with people that don't know him, to put off any forms that uh, come across as aggressive or hurtful or demeaning, but also to stand for truth and what it means to follow Jesus. So God, give us creative ways to be resilient, to stand firm for you, and to love you, and to pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you stand with me, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to sing two songs, and during these songs, the tables are now open. There's an offering box to give to what God is doing here. We'll take communion as a church together, and then these guys will close us out in a third, a third song. But let's worship the Lord. And maybe you yourself can pray for boldness. Not, Lord, take this from us. But how can we be a firm foundation, a pillar of truth, 
and love and kindness and generosity in a world that's trying to implement its thoughts and ideas by implanting them in our minds and our heads to get us to do things that are other than Scripture. Teach us to live that way. So pray for that, and let's pursue him now. Let's worship the Lord.